eat, sleep, links, repeat. Boom, let's party! your brain big enough? Welcome. This is the Atari Lynx Handicast. This is episode IN02 interview with Scott Rhodes. Mr. Rhodes was a game manual writer for both the Atari 7800 and the Atari Lynx from 1988 to 1992. This interview, which was recorded on May 19, 2021, is moderated by the host of the Atari Lynx Handicast, Mark Little. It is my distinct pleasure to introduce a man whose work every Lynxster in this community has read and enjoyed, perhaps repeatedly over the years. Uh, my guest wrote the booklet manuals and posters for many, if not most, of the 71 original Atari Lynx titles. He is a talented writer whose craft and storytelling enhanced so many games on the Lynx and other systems. I would, I would really like to welcome to the Handicast, Scott Rhodes. Welcome, Scott, and thank you so much for being here today. Hi, it's great to be here. This is, this is a fun topic. So. Good. <laughs> I'll try and keep it that way. Uh, first, I want to talk a little bit about Scott Rhodes, the man. Um, I did look at your website, the uh, portfolio website, and uh, you had a little bit of information about where you were born, raised in uh, Newark, California, I assume, not New Jersey. Right. And uh, that you've enjoyed writing since you were about five years old, uh, when you used to make up, used to make your own books by tracing pictures and making up stories to go with them. Uh, did you ever consider a career in art? Um, no, that would be a really bad career choice <laughs> for me, I'm afraid. <laughs> Do you happen to have any of those drawings still left over? Um, we have one. It was a school assignment from, it looks like it's about second grade or so, wow. where I, I wrote a little story about a, a ghost named Cowardly. <laughs> A ghost named Cowardly. I, I yeah, have to. Yeah, I kind of witches and skeletons show up, and Cowardly's afraid. And naturally, so a ghost that's afraid. I like. I like that idea. So, have you ever thought about expanding that story? <laughs> that one, I, I don't know. You know, it might be a fun one to look at. Some. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I, I did read some of your uh, story. Ah, <laughs> I think it's ten, <laughs> ten A's in a row with three exclamation points. I'm not sure which A gets the accent, but um, I, I read your uh, your excerpt from that on your website, and uh, it looks like a really cute story. Uh, did you have any input or inspiration from your kids or your grandkids on that story? Um, no, actually, that story was originally published as a short story, and right now I'm working on turning it into a novel. Okay. I, I wrote that as kind of 
relief after writing a much more emotionally difficult novel about, uh, well, it was, I wrote it during the time that my father was dying. And so oh. was, there was a lot that came up. So I needed to do something light. And I had this old short story sitting around and I thought, I'm just going to turn that into a novel, see what happens. I'm going to have to download that story because it looked really cute. And uh, I think you had a download link on your website. So I've got to definitely check that out. Um, let me see. Uh, what kind of, I, one of the things you said in your bio was that you'd like to, besides writing, you'd like to read. Uh, any particular kinds of books you like to read? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I was an English major in school, so I've, I enjoy classics, but I also, I'm, I'm really active in both my local and online uh, middle grade uh, kidlet uh, communities. And so I know a lot of people who are publishing books. I read a lot of their, their books. As well. Oh, that's really neat. Uh, I remember in one of the interviews that you did, I think it was for Atari Bytes back in 2017, you mentioned that there were a lot of writers, especially kids writers from Utah. Uh, is that still the case? It is still the case. In fact, I've been busy lately preparing for a conference in June that I'm on the staff for the conference. So there's a lot of work to do in the mm. next couple of weeks. Okay. Well, I'll try and keep you. Uh, I try, I'll try not to keep you. Uh. <laughs> it's nice to have a break from work stuff. So. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, one of the things uh, you mentioned is that you were in Austria in 1981 and in 82 and three months in Germany in 2005. What took you to Europe? To Europe? Um, well, it started out the, when I was in Austria. I was there on a Mormon mission. And oh. then I went back. I, I was working for, for Novell at the time doing networking software and mm -hmm. went back to work with their division in Nuremberg, Germany for almost four months, actually, in 2005. Oh, wow. Is that where you picked up the travel bug? <laughs> I've always had the travel bug. Oh, I, I just don't have the, the travel. Finances. Oh, yeah. Well, especially over the last year or so during right. the human malware. Um, one of the things you also mentioned was that you like to embarrass your kids. How, <laughs> how do you do that? <laughs> oh, there are so many ways. Uh, I guess so. One of, one of my favorites was, you know, they'd have friends over. And I'd go into T-Rex mode and just, yeah, just like <laughs> or, or King Kong or something, you know, just the, anything to anything to embarrass them. Or I'd come out, you know, because my, my hair's a little longer and I would do all these weird braids just sticking out all over my head and, and walk into the room and go, hey, kids, how you doing? So were you a jokester in school? Is that where you picked this up? Um, I, I'm from a long line of jokesters in my family. <laughs> Uh, I was I was actually a pretty good student, and you know I, I would joke with my friends, but I was fairly shy, introverted, you know. But uh, that's not coming across now, so I guess you got over that. That's great. Yeah, you know, I've learned how to deal with it. Like I mentioned, uh, I read a I'll read a sample from the short story that you wrote for um, Spaceports and Spider Silk Magazine, October of 2016. Uh, the story is called Ah. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. That's um, pretty cool. <laughs> when, uh, here's a, an excerpt that you had. Uh, when a meteor hits at R.J. Harryhausen Jr. High, space bugs turn the basketball team into brain-eating zombies just before their biggest game of the year. 
Well, first of all, I'd like to especially uh, thank you for the reference to the great movie special effects artist, Ray Harryhausen. You're a big fan of his? Yeah, I like him. And there's also the the rival school for the basketball team is yeah. Roger Corman Junior High. Oh, so Roger Corman, of course. To Roger Corman, too. Okay. Um, let's see. At what point did you decide that you wanted to be a writer professionally, whether fiction, nonfiction, or technical? Do you remember? Um, yeah, I mean, I had... By junior high, I was getting a lot of encouragement from teachers. And, mm-hmm. you know, I started thinking that maybe that would be something I'd want to do. And there was a, a newspaper columnist in in my hometown named named Ray Orock. So I was just talking about the, the columnist Ray Orock. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, reading his columns, I realized that you know, being a writer is something a person could actually be and do. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a little bit of trouble, though, in that I wanted to be a writer, but wasn't really writing all that much. <laughs> it's like I was just going to suddenly magically be a writer. I, mm-hmm. I didn't start really writing seriously till about 2001. Um, wow. That's but, so- you know, I, I, wrote, I wrote stories in high school. I wrote stories in college. I was on the both high school and college newspaper staff. I was, you know, on the literary magazines, things like that. So I, I was writing. It's just, you know, I wanted to be a famous novelist without ever actually <laughs> having to sit down and write. Oh, well, a writer writes, right? Sorry, sorry about that. Uh, let's see. What gives you more enjoyment, writing uh, fiction or nonfiction, would you say? Um, it's, it's fiction, definitely, because mm-hmm. yeah. I've been working as a technical writer for, geez, I'd have to do math, but since <laughs> yeah, you, and, I, I should you have know, told you there'd be so math. That, that's my that's my job, but yeah. the the fiction is more. I do that for fun and relaxation, and I mean, it's a lot of hard work. But it's not, you know, it's not like going to work uh, every day. Well, it kind of is because I write every day, but you know, it, but I, but I don't have somebody telling me what I have to write. I write what I want. So you have a discipline uh, that you've come up with to do some uh, fiction writing every day? Yeah, I, you know, I was writing, I actually teach a class about, or I'm teaching a class about that and the conference is coming up, but I, I was mostly writing on weekends and mm-hmm. I was challenged by a writer friend of mine who actually runs this conference. Her name's Carol Lynch Williams. Look her up. She's got like 30 published books. Good stuff. Oh. And, but she she challenged us at the conference to try to write every day until the next year's conference. And mm. somehow I did it. Wow. And so June, June 21st, it will actually be three years since I had a day when I didn't write. How much do you usually write every day? Is it an hour or a couple of hours? Well, I, I aim for 20 minutes and it usually turns into an hour, hour and a half. Mm-hmm. That's wow. That's that's a lot of but discipline. I'm, I'm, I'm a very firm believer in small goals. So, you know, if if I aim for 20 minutes, I know I can do 20 minutes. And then, but by then, you know, the juices are falling. Yeah. So. Yeah. You say, oh, let me get this idea down before I forget it. So, wow. That's great. Uh, how do you, uh, approach your writing projects? I mean, do you have, whether they're fiction or technical, do you have a certain approach that you always use? Um, well, for the fiction, 
it's it kind of depends on the story, but typically I will write kind of a synopsis of the story. I, I'm not a real big outliner, but I'll write down the main plot points. You know, so I'm basically I have the story beginning to end, but it's not much more than this happens than this happens. Than mm-hmm. this happens. Mm-hmm. And then I just start writing the scenes, and I write. I like to write the scenes out of order, which is a little unusual. Wow. <laughs> But that way, whatever I'm in the mood to write, I can I can write. I don't get blocked because I'm not sure what I want to do with the next scene. Um, for technical writing, it's a little bit different because, well, with with my especially my current job at Adobe, um, though we'll get like specs, you know, and just base, basic information to get us get us started, and then I start writing and get feedback on it and yeah so i guess that's your your synopsis yeah yeah is the specs that you get right wow and what kind of things do you write at novell um are you writing Uh, yeah i'm i'm at adobe now i've been at adobe for i'm sorry novell it's adobe yeah almost 13 years it'll be 13 Mm -hmm. years in august i i lead the Adobe Experience Platform documentation team. So oh. actually a lot of what I do now is less about writing and more about helping the rest of my team get their writing done. But I, I do maintain a couple of writing projects just to keep the skills sharp. Yeah, because you've got to have that in order to be able to teach someone else how to do it. Right. right. Okay, cool. Um, I love your blog, Our Generation's Father and Son Record reviews. I, I read through several of those and really enjoyed them, uh, in which you and your son wrote, I counted 165 reviews. That's oh, a lot. <clears throat> Over the course of six years for uh, reviews for classic albums. Uh, what was it like sharing a blog page with your musician son? It was fun. I wish it hadn't died out because, um, you know, I would have liked it to continue forward more into his music. And so it is sort of sort of unfair to be writing about albums that from my time. Right. But, right. You know, he's he's really eclectic in his musical taste. And it actually helped his musical education to have to read some, or oh. some classic albums that he didn't know. That's great. Right. And he's probably or could introduce you to some newer albums that you didn't know right. about. And that, that was the plan, but you know, life got busy. He was getting older and got into jobs and, you know, it just yeah kind of petered out, but I would love to see that come back. I had a lot of fun doing that. With well, him. I enjoyed reading a lot of it. So, and I've still got a long, long way to go at 165 <laughs> reviews. I can't um, that many. Yeah. That's how many I counted. Uh, Let's get into your Atari years, since this is an Atari podcast. Let's talk about that. Um, How did you first come to be employed by Atari's creative services department as a technical editor in, I think it was September of 1988. Is that right? Yeah. So um, (laughs) I I had just gotten out of school that May out of college and Mm -hmm. was looking for a job and I wanted something writing related. And I just, I, responded to an ad for a technical editor and mm-hmm. I figured it wasn't really what I wanted to do. I mean, I liked, I liked computers. I had a Commodore 64. I, you know, I, we, we had an Atari when I was around senior in high school at 2600. Um, but I didn't, I never really thought of myself as a technical writer. Mm-hmm. And, but 
there was this job and I needed a job and I took it and figured maybe I would try technical writing for a few years until I could get onto something else and I'm still doing it. So I guess it's about time to start calling it a career. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> now, did you have, uh, obviously with an English degree and um, college, uh, you probably got some technical writing classes there. So was that all of the training you had really for that kind of writing? Surprisingly, I never took a technical writing class. Really? I was I was an English major, and I certainly had to take at least one, I remember. Yeah, I mean, I, I was more on the, well, I was a double major English and language. And mm. then I, you know, a lot of the classes I took were more on the more on the literature side with creative writing and things like that mixed in. But it wasn't, mm -hmm. I never had a business writing class. And so I had to learn things <laughs> like editorial marks and things like that. Mm -hmm. on the job but you know i got there and realized i got to actually write stories and play games and you know it's that's not a bad job for to start a career no it isn't so you're it was it was tapping into your creative side as well not just technical yeah. right because i was i was hired as an editor but they quickly saw that I enjoyed writing and that I was pretty good at it. And so they started giving me writing assignments. Hmm. You know, at first, the the VP, or I think, I think his title was VP of Creative Services, you know, Mel Stevens, he was a little bit resistant to having me write because I was an editor. Editors don't write, they edit. <laughs> but I started writing, writing for some of the guides and people liked what I was doing. John Scratch, who was the, the head of the gaming, was excited about some of the things I had written. And next thing you know, I'm doing both. <laughs> I believe Scratch was uh, with the Epics team originally, right? Is that right? Or did he, was he always at Atari? No, I think he had been with Atari for a long time. Oh, okay. So he, uh, he didn't he didn't with Epics. Wow. Did they go in, do you know, into uh, with the idea that these manuals for whatever games they were needed to have some sort of backstory or was that something you kind of threw in and they liked? Well, I mean, if you look at the games before what we did, they usually had a paragraph or something of backstory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the other writer, his name was Terrier Thompson, and I both really enjoyed writing. And mm -hmm. we gradually made those backstories longer. I mean, we have some, most of them, we tried to keep them to about a page. But we have some that go beyond that, uh -huh. you know, but it was, <clears throat> I, I looked at the games and, you know, they're fun, but sometimes you wonder, you know, why is this guy shooting up some other planet right you know you've got a and i thought it, it's more fun for me if i'm not just pushing buttons and shooting things but instead i have a story that i'm trying to accomplish and so we wrote those stories and we had a lot of fun with those so i guess you really had to use some improvisational skills because you're given a game that's pretty much already finished from what i understand and you have to fit a story that or create create a story that fits that narrative and so that was probably pretty much a big challenge for you sometimes right 
Yeah, I mean, sometimes we would get we would get programmer notes that had a little bit of a story, and they mm-hmm. were usually, you know, you're the greatest pilot ever or something like that. <laughs> like Blue Lightning is a good example. Uh huh. The program for that was just kind of your standard. You're the best pilot ever, and so they hire you to do this big mission. And I started playing the game. And I was terrible at it at first. I thought, I don't feel like I'm the greatest pilot ever. So I came up with this storyline that actually the reason that they they enlisted you to do that, do these missions is because you're expendable and you're really terrible. <laughs> That's what it felt like when I started playing. That's a hard game too. So Yeah, and that one... I had written the the final manual is quite a bit different from what I had written because my my manager at the time thought I had gone a little bit overboard and even though even though Scratch loved it and said don't change anything he changed a lot of it and toned it down. Um, I, I wish I still had the original because I, I still have fond memories of writing that it was it was pretty oh, funny. Wow. Uh, do you think Scratch uh, had a few words to say to that manager? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, I I know he did. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I actually have the uh, the Blue Lightning manual right here, if you can see it. And yeah. uh, this is the bigger this is the bigger one. Yeah. Uh, of course, it came out in smaller version when they changed the box size. But um, yeah, even so, there's there's a good story in here, and even the the original manual that did eventually come out, it's got I mean, there must be six pages. A lot of it is technical, but I would imagine a lot of it is, um, yeah, a lot of it would include that backstory that you're not such right. a great pilot. <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of fun writing about the different missions in that one. Those those are some of the things that got cut way down, unfortunately. Mm. Um, were, there any, <laughs> uh, were there any that you remember that you really came up with a great story and it stayed in? Yeah, um, like Shanghai. You know, oh, Shanghai, yeah. yeah. Shanghai is just a basic Mahjong game. There's not really a story to it. Yeah. But I came up with this, you know, I think it's like two pages or two and a half pages long legend about what you're trying to, you know, you're, you're trying to, I can't remember it right now. I'd have to look it up. But it, it's like this mythological story. And it oh. was really I had fun writing that and I thought for sure they'd cut that down because, you know, by the time that one came out, we were starting to cut a few corners to cut costs and stuff, but they took it. They, yeah. Uh, it's a pretty thick manual. It's 22, 23 pages, 24 pages, I guess, counting the front and back. And yeah, there's a lot. I have not read this one yet. Cause I haven't gotten to that game yet. I like playing the game. But that's a lot for a game that's basically just Mahjong. Right. Uh, so, wow, I can't wait to get to this one. So, um, let's see. I have another sometimes, sometimes we did things like we would take something that was a part of the game, like like Paperboy. Yeah. And, you know, you can you can vandalize the homes of the non-subscribers. <laughs> yes. And, you know, the, the vandalizing is part of the game. I didn't make that up. But in the manual, there's a a revenge plot that you're actually trying to get revenge against oh. the people you while you were trying to get. The <laughs> and I, I, I'm like ninety five percent 
positive that I made that up because I've never seen that in another paperboy manual anywhere. Oh, for the other ports, it's not in there. The revenge right. plot. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the link should be uh, thankful for that. So did you uh, let's um, let's talk about your time at Atari a little bit more. Did you work at the main Atari campus in Sunnyvale or were you at a different office at the time? Do you remember? We, I was down there on Boragas Avenue. Hmm, okay. And the, the building that was just recently torn down. So. Oh, I didn't know it had been torn down. I knew it was empty, but wow. Yeah. That's a shame. A lot yeah, of memories it was there. Just torn down. I, I, saw, I saw some pictures, I think about two or three weeks ago, of the rubble of that building. Hmm. It was kind of sad. I had a good time there. Yeah, of course it would be sad. Yeah. Now, according to the interview that you did with the No Swear Gamer in 2016, you left Atari in the spring of 1990 because you were offered a better paying job with a quarter of the commute time. Um, was that the Everex, the company you left Atari for? Yeah, that, that was a, they were PC manufacturers. But, you know, I left Atari, but I never really left because after, after I left, they had me contract with them for a few more years. And so I, I kept, you know, because that would have been 90. Uh, so they had you doing, you were doing contract work with them, uh, I guess, remotely, right? Right. So th this, this was my first taste of telecommuting, which I now love. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, for the last year and a half, it's been standard, but I was working from home most of the time before that for the mm -hmm. last couple of years. Um, but yeah, so I, I started there and First of all, you know, Mel Stevens gave me a really hard time about leaving and offered me my manager's position. Oh, wow. Uh, I was thinking, you know, I've only, here I was, I was like, not, I think I just turned 30. Yeah. And, you know, I'd been doing this for a year and a half. I didn't feel like I was in any position to be a manager over anything. And, you know, plus the company was kind of struggling at that point. So, so I left, but I think it was only a matter of a week or two before I was back working with them. On <laughs> Did you get more enjoyment out of doing the contract work or, or the actually salary work when you were there? You know, there, there was a, there, there's some fun stories to tell about the contract. I, I loved the contracting because I could be, you know, sitting there in the evening playing, playing a game on the links mm -hmm. and, you know, my, my wife or kids or something would want something from me. And I'd say, leave me alone. I'm working. I'm playing a game. <laughs> <laughs> I got to try that on my wife. I don't think it's going to work though. <laughs> um, let's see. In the same uh, interview with the No Swear Gamer, you stated that during your time at Atari, you worked with Leonard Tremiel and to a lesser degree, Sam Tremiel. And you also said, you once saw Jack Tremiel at the urinal next to yours in the bathroom. That's quite a story. And yeah, that might be the only time I ever actually saw him close to me in the building. So, wow. And, and, you know, he's standing there doing his business right next. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. And in the interview that you did with Bill Pepper on the Atari Bytes podcast in 2017, you said that the work environment at Atari was pretty stressful as a result of the company's, quote, mail order mentality. Uh, my question is, did you feel at any point during your working relationships with the uh, Tremils that Atari was at that point in any danger of 
closing up shop? Um, no, I mean, there were, there were rumors when I left that there might be some layoffs coming, hmm. um, which, which was part of my decision, but you know, oh. they were around a few years after that. Um, I, I didn't think they were in danger of closing up shop and I hope they weren't because I had, I had friends there, hmm. but it was, you know, the, it, we had what the re, what I meant by the, the mail order mentality is we had a lot of work to do in a very short time. And it was more about, sometimes it seemed like it was more about cutting costs at that point because, you know, they, they weren't at the top of their, at their game then. And somehow, somehow the Game Boy was like blowing the links away, even though there's not any competition in the, in how good the games are. Yeah, that's true. Well, of course, the the Tremils are are famous for being penny pinchers, us Jack especially. So that's not surprising. Uh, I would guess that there was never really a sense of doom, just a sense of urgency that you would have for any kind of company that's putting out a product and has to get it out quickly, right? Right, right. And remember, this is my first job out of college, so my first my first mm. real job. So it was there was stress just because I was trying to learn how to be a good professional employee. But, you know, I had, I did a special project with Leonard. He had, there was this, it was a um, typesetting program that ran through the ST and would, and hooked up to CompuGraphic typesetting machines. If you remember those called, oh, yeah. called two. And this was like, this was one of his pet projects. And so we worked really closely on that. And, you know, at, at first I think, he was afraid that maybe it wasn't, uh, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but you know, he, he would, he, he was afraid that maybe the quality of the manual wouldn't be as good, but I won him over by the end. And you know, hmm. he said a lot of nice things about that man. He was, I, I like Leonard. He was a nice guy. He was a little, little gruff around the edges sometimes, you know, but. <laughs> he probably got that like, from his dad. Yeah. Well, for his brother, so. I guess, or he was a son, right? Leonard was a son of Jack's. Is that right? Yeah, Leonard, Leonard was, I believe, the youngest son. Yeah, and Sam was uh, a son as well, right? Right. Wow. Uh, did you do most of your writing? Well, you may have kind of already answered this. Most of your writing at the office, or well, especially after your contract work, you probably did most of it remotely. You didn't actually go into the Atari offices, did you? No, I I wrote remotely when I was contracting. And then just submitted it. They set me up with an ST and a printer and a modem. You know, it was like a 2400 baht modem. So, you know, it was speedy at the time and all those noises that they made. But yeah, it was. So you were using, you were, you were using the 16 bit machines by then. The eight bits had already gone away pretty much. Right. As far as what you were using. We did pretty much all of our writing on STs. both both in the office and then out of the office wow that's pretty cool do you still have an st i wish (laughs) yeah me too (laughs) um let's talk a bit about the manuals um when you were tasked at atari to write or edit an instruction manual for a game whether it was a 7800 game or a lynx game uh what were the first steps you you took um, if there were programmer notes and there weren't always i would read through those and get an idea of like especially special controls that I might not just discover. 
Mm. Like a good example of that is Warbirds. Warbirds is a really complicated game on the links. Yeah. And so I had to learn how to how to do a, a fairly realistic flight simulator using four buttons on the links. Um, but uh, the, for the first thing I would do after reading the notes is I would just play because I would I'd want to get for the storyline especially I wanted to have a feel for what the game's mood was. Mm. So, you know, if it was a silly game, I'd write something silly or if it was, you know, a, a more serious game, you know, like, like the, the Dracula RPG that we did, mm-hmm. you know, a, a silly story for that one would, wouldn't have been appropriate. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd play for a while and then I'd start writing. I very rarely had time to play a game all the way through mm-hmm. unless I had codes like like I did with Blue Lightning so I could try every level. But I, I played them, especially the games that I liked, I played them as much as I was able to get away with. <laughs> Warbirds was, uh, I, I would think, a, a fairly serious game since, you know, it's not really cartoony or anything. It's a great game. I really liked it. Uh, and when you got the game, it was mostly finished, right? Um, right. It, it, most of the time it was completely finished and they needed the manual like today. And so <laughs> so, so I, I would write it as quickly as I could. Okay. So like a week maybe for a manual? Yeah. I mean, I think as especially when I was contracting, they would send me like three or four three or four chips because we would, I would take the chip and actually plug it into a cartridge that then slid slid into the game. So oh, they would okay. send me maybe three or four chips a week and I would you know just in the course of a week I'd write all three or four games. Wow. So yeah uh, it was pretty fast. Uh where did you draw your inspiration from for the backstories in the game? Maybe? A lot of it just came from the games themselves. You hmm. know the every game has a mood yeah you know but then i would just pull out little like on the 7800 version of basket brawl yeah which is the the only manual i think that i actually worked my own name into um, <laughs> and the character bios have little references to like beach boys related music because you know i've always been really into them so you have like bruiser johnston as bruce johnston <laughs> you know i mean it, it, so i would i would pull out just little cultural things if i had a chance to do it now I, why I, did I, I had fun with that manual i wish we had had as many pages for the links version as we did for the 7800 version yeah the one Thanks. i've got for basketball for the links is oh it's 40 something pages but only six or seven are english and the rest is the other languages uh so how did you not get your name in this one um i i'm trying to remember the timeline i don't remember whether the links one came first no i believe the 7800 did yeah so i I think it was just because well as we got later into the links's life we had to start doing shorter manuals yeah Especially, I mean, we we did the experiment with the poster manuals, which is really fun. And then we got into short manuals where we were putting, what is it, four languages in the one guide? Yeah, four. Not to make them too long. So we had like four to to eight pages, I think. Mm, Yeah. So I couldn't do as much 
of the fun stuff with that. I just had to turn those out. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the writing was kind of on the wall for the links at that point. Um, let me talk about where the, what video games uh, manuals from the Atari Lynx manuals uh, do you have particular memories about that you haven't already mentioned? You mentioned Shanghai, uh, War Games, Blue Lightning, Basket Brawl. What others? Um, I, had, I had fun with with Rampage. Ah, you know, because I mean, first of all, the games the games a classic now, right? I mean, that, that's mm -hmm. just a great game. But I had fun writing about the four characters. I think we had four on the Lynx one. Ah, uh, five actually. Or five. Okay. Yeah. And, and the accident at the lab that that caused them to turn into the, the animals and you know it was I, I had a lot of fun with that one but um i also had fun with um oh there there are a lot of them i'm trying to i don't want to say the wrong one and then somebody goes and looks at the manual and it's one of the short ones well i can i can pull it out and let you know if so you can correct yourself if you have to. Like, like there's there's another one I'm having trouble remembering what it is right now. It takes place in a laboratory and there's like rotten food and stuff. Oh, Kung Fu. Yeah, Kung Fu. Kung Fu. I had fun with that one just because the game was mm -hmm. so so bizarre. Yeah. It so. is. It is. And I, I I enjoy that game, although it is kind of slow, but um it's one of these manuals that has four languages in it. So there's probably only about uh looks like well i don't know yeah six pages in english so that was later on i guess so that's yeah, I, had, I had fun with california games oh yeah the, like surfer talk <laughs> I, I actually i didn't know if they were going to allow that because i knew it was going to be translated and that kind of makes it harder to translate oh but, yeah <laughs> but yeah i mean that that was one of the first links games that i did and i think it kind of helped to make my reputation at the company just because I had so much fun on that one. Yeah, California spoken here, and you have, must be about 15 words in here, some of which I don't remember. And I'm I'm actually older than you, but I do not remember, a lot, like aggro. I just never heard that when I was uh, growing up. But of course, I didn't grow up in California, so maybe that's why. Yeah, your, uh, your, your California roots probably helped you with that, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was great. I loved having the glossary at the back. I wish you you or anybody had been able to do that more often with some of the games. Um, let's talk about your time after Atari. Uh, right. uh, what kind of work did you do at Novell? Um, at Novell, I worked on the, the network team. So I did a lot of the networking software. Uh, the, my first my first assignments at Novell were actually for, and this, this is really, really exciting stuff, but for the uh, the Macintosh protocols, networking protocols. Oh, yeah. So these kind of manuals would be ones that would be sold with the uh, that software, uh, right? And not necessarily to the general public, maybe somebody with a little bit more specialty. Uh, right. Yeah, this all came out with with the software. First, we were doing printed books, and Network came with this big, like a whole shelf of, I want to say there were like thirteen or fourteen different manuals, maybe yeah. even more. Some of them were really small, but it was it took up the whole shelf. <laughs> and then eventually, we switched over to on to like web manuals. Which, you know, at first that was that was a difficult shift to make because you know we all love 
books and and it was nice to have you know do all the work and have something that i could hold up and say look i wrote this mm. you can't really do that with the with the website stuff as much but. no no i guess not uh when you actually finished a set of those books let's say first of all did you work on them on your own or did you have a team no i was on i was on a team we had mm. at one point the novel technical writing department that this included uh, graphic artists and editors and everything we were we were around 100 people so it wow. was big change from the two of us at atari <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess so that's a big team uh do you uh do you have any retro gaming or retro computer consoles right now do you still yeah, have any I do. In, in fact i'm I really like the Raspberry Pi. Hmm. And so one of the first things that I actually, I have three of them, maybe four. Uh, one of them is set up for, for gaming and the other, the other one that's wow. hooked up right now, I just experiment with, like I set up a distraction free writing machine with that one that I've never actually used to write, but I liked the process of setting it up. Distraction free writing. Uh, yeah, so so you turn it on, it goes right to the editor. You can't get to, I mean, you you can get to the internet and stuff from it, but you have to you have to go on and actually close the editor to get in, get into the desktop. Ah. So it's just set up basically like a word processor. And it's um, a I also I also have an Evercade. Can't oh yeah, yeah. But <laughs> I just happen to have Atari Collection One right uh -huh. now. Have you got number two yet? Yeah, I do. I, I have. Wow. And of course, I have both Lynx collections. I hope they do more Lynx collections. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think they are. Um, I've been uh, reading up on uh, Songbird, who owns a lot of rights uh, to some of the uh, uh, third party games. And so from what I understand, there might be a third uh, Evercade cart coming out. So but I was I was surprised when I picked it up and plugged in the Lynx cart and you know, memories came back of the games, but more <laughs> importantly, a lot of those games still hold up really well. Oh yeah, they do. And, and I did. I had played some of them on the Raspberry Pi or on a PC with an emulator, and it's not right. the same. Actually, having a, a little handheld computer with the color screen in front of me and playing these games, just you know, I I, I still think those are great games. The only thing is, they don't come with the manuals. Right. Yeah, right. that's the thing. So but they're not hard to find online. No, that's true. They're not. You go to Atari Age and see them all. Um, what were your favorite Atari Lynx games to play? Uh, you've mentioned a couple of them already. Do you mean just just playing just them? Just playing them. Like, yeah. Um, well, I really liked. I like Rampage. I, mm -hmm. You know, one that I didn't write that was, was one of my favorites to play was Clocks. Oh, yeah. And, and for clocks, they actually, this is one of the ones that the writer, Terrio, was actually able to start writing before the game was done. The The programmers had the arcade machine up in their hallway, and mm -hmm. so we would just go up and play it, and she'd start writing. So I got hooked on that game before it ever came out. And, the, and after it came out, it was one of the few that I actually asked to have one, to have a cartridge so I could play it just for fun. And, yeah. Uh, they were nice enough to let me do that. Um, California games, especially the especially the surfing. I like the, the surfing on that. Yeah. Um, 
and I got into the BMX once I figured it out. It was I never could get into the BMX. The surfing's my favorite, but yeah. you know, BMX and the um, surf, uh, skateboarding. I just couldn't the pipe half pipe. I just never could get the hang of that. <laughs> and Paperboy was fun. Oh yeah, one that you don't really hear about that much anymore. I mean, maybe you do being involved with the community, but Packland, remember that one? Oh yeah, I actually just picked that one up about two three months ago that's yeah. a strange game it is a strange game and i'm not <laughs> sure why but i really enjoyed playing that one you know and, and shanghai was fun and yeah. there was the casino game mm-hmm. you know we had like i can't remember what the games were i think it was like roulette and blackjack and things like those, those were fun to play mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's great there were, there were quite a few rygar i liked rygar for and, and oh. scrap dog scrapyard dog was another one of the ones i had <laughs> because i mean it's not like it's no nobody except for links fans is going to look at scrapyard dog and say you know this is one of the greatest games ever but it was really fun to play and it had it had good humor in it yeah and with the manual and you know i just enjoyed playing that one yeah that is a good game but you're right it, it to a non-links person they may say what is this you know it's too right. it's too uh, juvenile but it really is a fun game. Uh, do you harbor a secret or not so secret desire to actually create a game on your own? <laughs> uh, yeah, I've actually I've, I've played around with trying to do some interactive fiction, you know, along the lines of Zorb and those kinds of things. Oh, like the Infocom games. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. As a as a storyteller, that really appeals to me. Hmm. Um, on the Commodore, I had. Electronic Arts had a couple of little, I can't even remember what it was called, but but you could make your own little arcade games and stuff with it. I had. Oh, um, that was called, uh, well, they had music construction set and then they had. Yeah, they were construction sets. Construction sets, but I can't remember. Video game construction set or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I had fun with it. I didn't do anything that. You know, people were clamoring <laughs> to play. But, so no burning know. desire to create a game that you could then write the manual for. <laughs> no, not not really. I mean, except for if I if I ever worked on a game with either on my own or with somebody else, it would need to be a game with a lot of story to just to appeal to my like a, like an RPG or something to to appeal to my story. Would you start with the game itself or the manual itself? Because you'd have the option to do either one. Yeah, I think if it were up to me, I would probably I'd probably write a story and then find a programmer and say, "Here, turn this into." <laughs> Let him do all the all the uh, grunt work. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a coder. <laughs> I I learned some basic back on the Commodore, and I've mm-hmm. you know I had to play around with little bits of code here and there or read through code with my job, but I'm I'm definitely not. A, an engineer, a software engineer. Mm. You, you mentioned the Commodore 64. Now, I don't know if you remember, but when I was uh, back in the early 80s, late 70s, mainly the early 80s, if you were either a Commodore person or an Atari person, you couldn't be both. And so when you went to work for Atari, did any of your Commodore friends say, ah, you're, you're selling out to the man or whatever, you're, you're jumping ship? No, mostly they thought Atari must be a cool place to work. Like oh, I, got, yeah. I got my um, Commodore 64 <clears throat> in 1983, 
three mm-hmm. and I was juggling. I, I had a really hard time deciding whether to get the Commodore or I, I think the, I think the Atari 800 was the one that was popular at the same time yeah. or the, or the little TI computer, which I thought, Oh, I have one behind me. <laughs> yeah. No, and I almost got that instead of the Commodore, but but then I saw, I mean, you know, Commodore had its own magazines and, you know, mm-hmm. and it was really popular. So I made that choice. I never regretted it. I, I liked my Commodore. Mm-hmm. They had a big library of uh, software, too. So that that yeah. helped a lot, too. Yeah. And, I mean, I got through. <laughs> this is hard to believe now. But, I mean, I got through college using SpeedScript as my word processor. Oh, my goodness. Type in word processor from Compute Magazine. <laughs> A type-in word processor. Wow. Right. And it didn't do much. Like you could transpose letters if you wrote T instead of the, and and you could move blocks of text around, which is what I thought was really cool. Yeah. But just that being able to, like my, my penmanship has never been really good. And so being able to <laughs> write on the screen, see what I'm writing and then edit it on the screen and you know that that was really cool, even with something as rudimentary as as speed script. Wow! And that got that got you through college too. Yeah, I, I don't you know because that, that's what I had. So wow, yeah. <laughs> so I, I would print out. I still have some. I'd print out like research papers with a, a dot matrix printer. So you know, <laughs> really beautiful, and I didn't have a lot of money, so it wasn't a a nice stop matrix printer, you know, and tear off the little holes on the oh, yeah. and turn them in. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I had to do that too, but I didn't have a, I had the TI, but by then, by the time I was in college, it was uh, not being supported by Texas instruments anymore. So, uh, but I did eventually get an eight, uh, 800 XL from Atari and that one did get me through college. So I was pleased I with that. You have an 800 XL. Do you? There was uh, at one point they uh, around Christmas time they were trying to empty out the warehouse, and so employees yeah. could take up to four. So I I took four of them and gave them out as gifts. One of them I gave to my to my brothers, and I found it under a, a pile of a whole bunch of stuff while we were going through my dad's things after he died a couple of years ago. Yeah, and so uh, obviously I took it. <laughs> naturally does it work uh, yeah i mean the light comes on i haven't plugged it into a tv or anything to check it out but yeah the i, I only found one cartridge with it and that was, that was joust you know which is a great game that is a great one yeah there was a good one on the links as well so man right. yeah. of course that was not atari so you didn't write that manual probably because that one came um, from actually i i'm trying to remember i think I didn't write Joust, but I think Terria actually did a version of, of Joust for the ST. I, oh, I, yeah. I could be remembering wrong. <clears throat> but one thing I remember about Joust was she called me over to her desk once because it had an error message that just said, whoa, bummer. Really? <laughs> and I don't know what she did to pull it to get that message out, but, you know, that's a really helpful error message. Okay. <laughs> Let me ask you this one last question. Um, if you were able to go back in time and tell your younger self, especially your Atari days self, one thing that might help you or uh, to warn you yourself about uh, with your life or your career, 
path. Uh, what would you say, do you think? Uh, I think I would have liked to, well, there are two things. One, keep stuff. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I, I had my hands on, on original manuscripts and things that would, that would have some, some interest to people now. And an original links too, from what I read. Yeah. Well, and I had the links that was the handy. Yeah, the, the the pinky mandy. You know, I mean, with the little box, it was basically a modem box that plugged in with a rhythm or a ribbon cable into the links. So I had one of those. I also had. Eventually, I got they they gave me two of the original links just out of the box. Still wow. have the but I gave the lynxes back. I wish I, you know, <laughs> if I had known that they were going to be going going under some as soon as they did after that, I I might have been tempted to be less professional and not hand some things back. <laughs> you know, I, I had I had the, just the little the the eproms with so many of these games mm. you know, would be museum pieces for people who are interested in that kind of thing yeah they would and be it's just but but mostly i would i'd love to have some of the original manuscripts that i had like like for blue lightning especially since that one was changed so much yeah. and then again not bitter at all um, <laughs> and then the other thing i would have told myself was you know technical writing is a pretty good career so enjoy it and get better at it and you know don't don't I was still thinking that somehow I was going to become a rich and famous novelist without actually writing a novel. And, you know, if I had thought of, if I had considered technical writing as a long-term career, then I would have gotten some training, taken some classes and things that would have helped me later. I've done okay. I, I, I'm pretty yeah. happy the way the career has gone, but, you know, maybe I would have done more even. You know? Right. Well, speaking of classes, you did actually, uh, you went through a master's writing class or a writing uh, program recently, right? Within the right. last four years? Right. I graduated in 2017 with a, wow. a master's degree in professional writing from Chatham University. You know, doing that in my, in my mid-50s was, I mean, I, I'd never planned on stopping school after a bachelor's degree, but eventually I had to get a job and make money. You know, I had a, a wife and kids and, yeah. you know, I, I, I had to, I had to start working and I was a little bit resistant to that because I, I would have loved to have gone on for a PhD and become a professor or something like that. But yeah, it's, I had the opportunity to have Adobe helped to fund that master's. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I paid about, I think I paid about three fourths of it, but they paid a quarter of it and gave me some time. I was still doing my job, but they understood that I was also studying and, you know, kind of maybe let up a little bit, mm -hmm. but that's, that is actually one of the reasons why I'm in the position that I'm in right now at Adobe as the lead of that writing team is because of the the classes i took and things like information architecture and stuff that mm. I, you know I, I picked a lot of it up it, i mean honestly it wasn't that hard to get the master's degree because i had almost 30 years of experience at that point yeah but but there were things like info architecture and things that i, that I had just learned from experience and didn't know really any of the theory or anything behind it that 
made it so I could do it even better. So yeah, thanks for mentioning that. That that was actually I'm proud of that. That yeah. Late, later in life, I was finally able to go back and get that master's degree I always wanted. It wasn't in the subject I always wanted. Like I had originally thought, uh, you know, th- this this is going to reveal more about me probably than I than <laughs> than anybody wants to know. But I originally thought I wanted to get a master's degree in medieval languages. Well, you mentioned in one of your interviews that you were, or no, it's actually on your pro- portfolio page that you were interested in uh, the Middle Ages. Yeah. How did you get interested in that? I just kind of always was. And then, you know, I start start reading Lord of the Rings and things like that. And then then having the chance to live in Austria where there's castles all over the place. Oh, and Germany, too. Yeah. Right. And Germany later. And, you know, it's and and I was really into like Arthurian literature Hmm. and later some of the medieval German literature that it's really good and especially if you don't have to necessarily read it in translation it's even better um mm. and you can read it in german yourself right yeah yeah that's that's really neat man so, yeah i mean it's just it, it was an interest when i was when i was a kid i was really interested in things like mythology and fairy tales and things mm-hmm. like that um tall tales all of those things and, and so it just kind of it was a natural outgrowth of that like you know, I, I read I read Lord of the Rings, and then I went out and read Beowulf the first time for fun. You know, I, in German or in English? Well, no, I, this was definitely in English. I have it. I have it in Old English, and I've actually, old English. I've actually read it in German. I've read Lord of the Rings in German as well. Wow! But, yeah, it, that's it's it all comes from being a word nerd. You know, you just <laughs> that's a good that's a good title. Well. Before I say goodbye to my guest, I want to let all of my listeners know that links to Scott's website portfolio, to Scott's Our Generation's Father and Son Record Reviews blog page, and to Scott's interviews with the No Swear Gamer at Atari.io and with Bill Pepper on the Atari Bytes podcast, all of those links will be included in the show notes for this episode. So please check them out, everyone. Well, Scott, do you have any parting words of wisdom for or from a past Atari employee to the current Atari Lynx community? Just keep playing the games. <clears throat> keep them alive. These, these games are worth are worth keeping alive because, you know, I, I'd hate to think that the, the, the newer games just completely pushed them out of existence. Yeah. Uh, and, I... and, and, and while you're playing, go out and check Atari Age and read the manuals and think of me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, please do. I totally agree with that. Scott, I really appreciate the time that you've spent with me and with my listeners today uh, relating your fascinating writing career at both Atari and beyond. Your valuable work, especially on the Lynx manuals, uh, to make those manuals a little less dry and technical and to make them a little more human and fun is something I truly appreciate every time I read them. And I hope others feel the same way. Your, Your storytelling in the manuals really fleshes out the games themselves, which to me, makes them that much more enjoyable to play. So thank you for your creative contributions, especially to the Atari Lynx community. And thank you so much for joining the Handicast today. I really hope we can do this again sometime soon. Yeah, it would be fun. I have more stories I could tell. Yes. Thank, so thanks for remembering me. You know, yes. and just uh, I'm, I'm proud of the work I did then. At the time, I didn't realize that I was doing something that would become 
part of popular culture. But yeah. It has, and I'm excited to be to have been a part of that. Well, I hope this time with with me today and with my listeners helps cement that reputation. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Leaving so Thanks are in order for the Free Music Archive, which allows for the song 8-Bit Core by Tagirigius to be used as the opening and closing theme music for the Atari Lynx Handicast under the Creative Commons license. I would also like to thank Ferg of the Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast, Shinto of the Atari Jaguar Game by Game podcast, and Zerbi of the many Zerbinator Land podcasts, including the excellent Please Stand By podcast. The help and inspiration that Ferg, Shinto, and Zerbi have provided in my brief podcasting experience are invaluable to me, and I really appreciate it. Finally, I would also like to give my heartfelt thanks to my beautiful wife, Lizzie. She has put up with me and with this strange podcasting thing with the patience of a saint, and I could never fully repay her, but I will definitely try. That's nudge, snap, snap, green, green, wink, wink, sign them all. The Atari Lynx Handycast is a proud partner with AtariGamer.com. If you are looking for the latest Lynx news, interesting Lynx articles, a full list of Atari Lynx games, and a one-stop compendium of all things Atari Lynx, you can't do any better than visiting AtariGamer.com. Tell them Monkey sent you. The Atari Lynx Handycast is also a proud member of the Throwback Network. You can listen to all of the great retro-themed podcasts on the network, including this one, by visiting throwbackreviews.com. Just click on the podcasts link in the top menu. Episodes of the Atari Lynx Handycast can be found on Apple Podcasts. Please take time to leave a review on Apple Podcasts so that other interested listeners can easily find the Handycast. In addition to Apple Podcasts, the Atari Lynx Handycast can be found everywhere that podcasts are sold, including Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Amazon Music, Deezer, iHeartRadio, Pandora, and Spotify. Be sure to check out the Atari Lynx Handycast website. All of the episodes can be found there, including show notes and a list of upcoming episodes. You can even purchase Handycast-themed merchandise such as mugs, mouse pads, t-shirts, and tote bags. They're all in the handy shop on the Handycast website at atarilynxhandycast.net. And also don't forget to visit the Handycast blog page at atarilynxhandycast.blogspot.com. Also, you can follow the Atari Lynx Handycast on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash Atari Lynx Handycast. Plus, you can also follow the Atari Lynx Handycast on Twitter and on Instagram. 
Just search on both platforms for Link's Handycast. And Reddit users can find the Handycast at reddit.com slash users slash Atari Link's Handycast. Finally, you can send Mark Little an email and let him know what you think about any episodes of the Atari Lynx Handycast. Or you can provide your own feedback about any Atari Lynx games. You can even suggest future topics or possible interview subjects to future episodes. Or you can just simply say, hi. Just write to him at mark at atarilynxhandycast.net. Thank you for listening. This is Montague Habisham wishing you all a jolly good evening. The Atari Lynx Handicast is made possible by a grant from the Telesearch Group and by the generous support of listeners like you. Thank you.